I was going to say, what a wonderful thing it is. What a great gift to God. We get to sing songs like that. In the New Testament, we are exhorted to worship together and singing in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And let me tell you, as one who is just visiting among you, and I'm always thrilled, Mary and I are always thrilled to be here at Grace Church of the Valley. I want to tell you, a part of what we love about you is you sing. And by you, I mean you. I mean all of you. Children sing. Adults sing. Let me tell you one sign of health or unhealth in a church. Do older boys and do men sing? And uh, when they sing, something serious is going on. And uh, that's exactly what's happening here. Mary and I are thrilled to be here. I am always glad to have the opportunity to preach at Grace Church of the Valley. I want you to know that the reach of your ministry and the influence of this pulpit goes further than you ever imagine. I am so thankful for your pastor, Scott Artavanis, who is, is not only a model for other pastors, but is by God's gift a dear friend. And just so glad to be here. Um, and uh, with, with the family of faith that is here, just remarkable. So we've been able to sing together. And uh, we're going to do some other things in the course of the day. And the only thing I want to say in response to Pastor Scott's very kind word if the baby's screaming, that doesn't work for the live recording of the briefing. But I love children being present. And uh, so it is just don't, don't worry about kids. Uh, so if, unless, unless they're the screaming type, you know. <laughs> and, and you know what I mean. Once they get into that mode where the eyes are shut, the mouth's open. Okay. That's... That's it. That's it. What a beautiful thing. And all the children in here in the worship service and all of us together. This is a foretaste of heaven, literally. I mean, it, it actually is. You know, evangelicals talk that way. But listen to yourself when you talk. It's true. The joy that is in this room, infinitely magnified, is going to be all we will know in the kingdom of Christ. I want to be ready for that. I want to desire that. But now is the time to turn to the preaching of God's Word. The central act of Christian worship actually is not singing. The central act of Christian worship is the Word of God preached. And I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. And uh, in a way that will be unusual for you, I want to ask you for patience because it's going to be a few minutes before we get to the text I will preach. And that is because I just want to situate us in the book of Acts. When you think about the New Testament, the two forms of, of New Testament book that come most immediately to mind are the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the letters or the epistles, which take up most of the rest of the New Testament. Now, in between the gospels and the apostolic epistles is the book of Acts. I. Uh, had the great opportunity over years to preach through the book of Acts. Eventually, I wrote a two-volume commentary on the book of Acts. I want to tell you the book of Acts is, in my view, just one of the most neglected parts of the New Testament for believing Christians. And we need to pay a lot of attention to the book of Acts precisely because this is the early church at its earliest stage, figuring out what Christianity is, figuring out what the gospel is, and figuring out what the church is. 
There's a reason why it follows the Gospels. It's not just the sequential logic of here you have the Gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you have the letters to the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church. You've got to figure out how you get from Jesus to church, even to the letters to the promises. Now, the church is declared by Christ in Matthew chapter 16, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's the first time that word, ecclesia, the church, is used in that context. And, of course, that's in the flow of, of the life and ministry of Jesus. And at that point, Jesus is headed for Jerusalem for the substitutionary act of atonement, whereby he would die on the cross for our sins and then be raised from the Father. It's the promise of our own resurrection from the dead, and thus we are saved. But... The book of Acts opens, as you see here in Acts chapter 1, and it'd be good if we just take a look at it for a moment. It begins with the ascension of Jesus. In verse 6, so when they come together, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why are you standing looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You may not have thought about this. This is, this is actually just crucially important in, the, important in the flow of New Testament history. There is no lengthy time between the resurrection and the ascension where Jesus tells the disciples everything they need to know about the establishment and the operation of his church. Okay, Christians have one of two alternatives. Either Jesus didn't give them what they needed or Jesus intended for them to receive that instruction another way. Okay, you following me? So the church desperately needs instruction on who the church is, how the church is to be structured, what the message and ministry of the church is to be, how, how the church is together for worship. Jesus didn't give those instructions to his disciples. Instead, he ascended unto the Father. So are the disciples left, are the early Christians left in a position in which they have no divine guidance about the answer to these things? Of course not. Jesus, in the Gospels, and in particular, in very sweet language in the Gospel of John, had said to the disciples, when I leave, I will send the helper. And when the helper comes, he will teach you. It's an amazing thing. Now, one of the things we need to recognize is that the disciples didn't understand this all at once. So, I wonder if you've ever been in the position of saying... And, and there's some old evangelical kind of sweet spirituality hymnody that kind of goes this way. You know, I, I wish I could have walked with him and talked with him. And, and the impl implication there is that we'd know more about Jesus if we walked with him and talked with him. Let me tell you the most amazing thing. You know more about Jesus than the disciples did. 
We know more about the church and God's plan for the church than the disciples did. Now, they were amazingly and singularly important in salvation history because they were those whom Jesus had called to himself as his disciples. But we have what Jesus himself said is something better, and that is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures is the Word of God. The disciples did not have the New Testament. We do. We have the fullness of, the, of God's revelation for the church. The book of Acts is a part of that fullness. The book of Acts plays a very critical part. I want you to see how. Okay. Follow through. Look over to Acts 2. Okay, I want you to think of something else because most Christians just don't think about this. So let's, let's, let's force ourselves to think about this for a minute. If you had a, an apostolic preacher, and remember the apostles are those whom Jesus sent. So the apostles are a fixed set. They are the ones whom Jesus sent and commissioned. They are a singular generation in the church. They are the transition between Jesus's earthly ministry and the ongoing character of the church. The apostolic age where these apostles are teaching and preaching, this is the period whereby the Holy Spirit gives to the church the normative commands and instructions concerning how the church is to operate, but also the normative preaching of the gospel. Let's just be honest. If we had just the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we would know so much about Jesus, but you would not know exactly how to preach the gospel. I hope you're following me on this. You're saying, well, the Bible does tell us how to preach the gospel. Yes, it does. But not so much out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, more out of the book of Acts, and then the apostolic testimony that comes in the letters, for instance, of the apostle Paul. Just give the example, the most classic example. So this is why the Lord knew we needed the entirety, the canon of Scripture, all 66 books. And in the New Testament, we need every single book. The book of Acts is the great hinge book between the four Gospels and the early church. So how are they going to preach the Gospel? Well, that becomes a crisis as early as Acts chapter 2. And it's Peter who's preaching. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Just for the sake of time, skip down to verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. David stayed buried, not Jesus. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
Now, maybe you say, there's some sermons I would like to have heard in person. You know, by the miracle of recording, there are more people listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones preach than ever heard him preach during his earthly ministry. Same thing's true with so many other preachers. By the miracle of recording, you know, you can hear their voice. You can, you can, you can hear it. I, w- I wish I could see a video of that. I can't, I, I, but instead I have something better and that is the inerrant infallible word of God telling me about Peter's sermon at Pentecost because if this makes sense to you, it is only because you as a believer are saturated with scripture to the extent that this sermon makes sense to you. Had you been standing there, this would have been teaching even the other Christians, including even the other apostles, what the gospel is because the Holy Spirit having just come is speaking through the apostle Peter in such a way that the entire church is instructed. And that means all of us here today, we are instructed by what the Holy Spirit told Peter to preach. All right, maybe you can understand why it was two volumes. Just very quickly as you look through. Pastor Scott took us into Acts chapter four, another great turning point. Here you see the conviction and the courage come together. There is courage in Peter's sermon. After all, he was facing down what amounted to a Jewish mob in Acts chapter two. And in Acts chapter four, the Jewish leaders are gonna do their best to intimidate the disciples from ever preaching Christ again. They asked the question, verse seven, by what power or by what name did you do this? Okay, you want a name? This is where Pastor Scott took us in the reading of the word in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You want a name? We'll give you a name. And it's the only name given under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved. The name is Jesus. You got to love, this is where the courage comes. There's a conviction. The courage follows, look at verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So I hope you see this. I'd love to preach this sermon. It's not my calling this morning. Do you notice how in, in verse... In all these verses, in chapter four, name keeps coming up, name, name, name. But whose name do you do this? Well, it's this name, and it's the only name given under heaven and earth whereby one must be saved. Don't preach that name. It's just a phenomenal Holy Spirit-inspired text just to show us evidently the name of Jesus is so central. They commanded the apostles never to speak it again. Here's the courage. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be judged. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. All right, the early church is developing. The early church is developing leadership. It's working through pastoral questions. It's figuring out what it means to be gathered in worship. It is figuring out how to preach the gospel. It is, it is understanding how to preach the gospel in every single sermon, and every single conversation. It's understanding how to send the gospel by means of the apostles and the, those the apostles deputize to go on missionary journeys, which becomes so much of not only the rest of the book of Acts, but the background to so much of the rest of the New Testament itself. But just to show you how fresh this is, both in the history of Christianity, now 2,000 years old, and in our history, just days old, I want you to look at the book of Acts chapter 11. Verse 
And this is one of the transition points because of the salvation, the conversion of Saul, who will become Paul, who will become so crucial to the text of our consideration this morning. But it's just a little footnote. I want you to notice something. In the book of Acts, there are all these little references, and you might read this text devotionally, you might preach this text, you might hear this text preach, and this doesn't leap out at you the way it will leap out at you right now. Acts chapter 11, look at verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Isn't that amazing? We didn't have a name until chapter 11. We're just the Jesus people. That's all we are. We're Christ's people. We're followers of the way. We don't even have a name. But remember in chapter 4, name, 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 give us a name. What is the name? Don't preach that name. Now it's the name of Jesus Christ that becomes the name of who we are. And I want you to notice something. It is not said that Christians held, that the apostles held a conference and said, okay, we're going to have to name ourselves. We need a committee. We've got to have the naming task force. Branding's a big deal here. We're going to have to worry about this. If the Lord tarries, we're going to have thousands of years of living by this name. What's it going to be? No! Christians didn't call themselves Christians. The early church being overheard by the world and understanding the gospel, understanding the claims that the early church was making and its preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, they called the followers of Christ, of Christ Christians. Isn't that amazing? We call ourselves Christians. The verse happened in Antioch. And I said, this verse might not leap out at you in the past the way it should leap out at you right now. And I don't know if you have any idea what I'm talking about. I will be talking about it, Lord willing, on the briefing tomorrow morning. Antioch, formed by one of the lieutenants of Alexander the Great in the third century BC, became the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And that's why so much of the New Testament is centered on coming in and out of Antioch. That's where the early church was very present in early form. This is where you see here that uh, Paul was taken, even as Barnabas took him just in order to teach him. It was there that Christians were first called Christians. Antioch survived from 300 B.C. until last month. When the city now known as Antarctica was completely destroyed in the earthquake on the Turkish-Syrian border. And what was not destroyed in that massive earthquake was destroyed in an earthquake that took place just within the last week, even destroying the ruins. It has been declared uninhabitable. Okay, that just shows you that you, we, you, we think these things are a long way from us. This is in the headlines right now. And you know what's really interesting? The New York Times ran a news story, and you know what it had to say? I got, I got emotional reading it. It said... It was in Antioch that believers in Jesus were first called Christians. That sentence was in the New York Times this week. It's in the book of Acts. 
for almost 2,000 years. All right, we have to get to where we're headed. So much more. You have, the, the, of course, the conversion of Saul who becomes Paul. You have the Jerusalem Council. You have all these things happening. And then Paul becomes the great missionary preacher of Christianity. And so Paul, who was the great enemy of the church, even the persecutor of the church, is met by Jesus. And by the way, how does Paul identify himself in his letters? The authority that Paul claims is the authority of an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. His apostleship is different than the apostleship of some of the others, just to say John and Peter, to give two examples, because they had walked with him and talked with him. He had chosen them in his earthly ministry. But the apostle Paul, the early church recognized, is no less apostolic because Christ appeared to him in a vision and turned him from the great enemy of the church into the great teacher of the church. But you know, they didn't happen instantaneously. It took a bit of time. There's a lot in the chapters between where we were in Acts chapter 4, even going to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. But where we are headed is Acts chapter 19. Now, by the time you get to Acts chapter 19, there's a lot of, of chatter. There's a lot of conversation in Asia Minor, in the Mediterranean world, about Jesus and about these people called Christians and about what they are preaching. There are also reports, and this is true, of course, of the ministry of Jesus in the four Gospels about the ministry of healing, the miracles that took place. And furthermore, the book of Acts begins with, in the apostolic age, a demonstration by the Holy Spirit, even in the gift of men and women from so many different tongues and tribes and peoples and nations hearing the gospel in their own language and believing, being saved. Here's something we need to know. Evangelical Christians, <laughs> we should not be scared of these passages. This is God's inerrant and fallible word. But we must understand that those signs, those miracles existed to attest the authenticity of the preaching of the apostles before we had the fullness of Scripture, which was promised. Now we have the fullness of Scripture. We do not attest or verify what we preach by some miraculous sign. We now verify what we preach, and your job is to judge what we preach, not by the absence or presence of a miraculous sign that was true in the age of the apostles, but rather by whether or not what we preach is consistent with the Word of God. All right. Acts chapter 19. This is this period in the early church where they're learning how to preach the gospel and they're learning just how much opposition the gospel has. And they're also learning that there are people trying to get in on the gospel or at least they're trying to get in on the power of Jesus. And all I can tell you is we're going to share a passage that undoubtedly you know, I'm just going to tell you, you don't know it nearly as well as you're about to know it. And I'm not congratulating myself on the sermon. I'm just situating it within the context of the book of Acts because now you know that just about everything that follows is going to be explosive in one way or another. So let's just read the text. Let's just let the text do what God's Word does. And once we recover from reading the text, we'll take a stab at coming back to preach it. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened. That while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, 
did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Upon hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And as he entered the synagogue and was for three months speaking boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pounds of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Seriously. What was the sermon about this morning? You know, oddly enough, it ended up with naked exorcists running through Ephesus. Uh, you know, eh, uh, that's in there. That's in there. Oh, and by the way, they were made naked by an evil spirit who beat them up, all seven of them. Uh, wow. Okay, just remember, no text of Scripture is given to us to amuse us. It is all to instruct us. But boy, if their instruction in this passage, and, and don't feel badly, it can't help but amuse you. Because what the Holy Spirit wants us to see and what the apostles certainly want us to see is the humiliation of those who seek to come against the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember chapter four, where we started? What's the name? The name is Jesus. There's no other name given under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved. Don't preach that name. We're going to preach that name. You fast forward here in the book of Acts, you're in chapter 19, people are trying to use the name. You'll notice they're trying to use not only the name of Jesus, they're also trying to use the name of Paul. It's an amazing passage, but very quickly, I want us to look at something. And uh, a part of what I want us to see is that in the flow of the book of Acts, 
It's one event like this after another. So follow with me for a moment. One of the things we need to see is that in the pattern of apostolic Christianity, we, we learn how the church is to handle things, okay? And there's something really, really sweet that comes just before this, and it's actually crucial to our understanding of what in the world's going on in Ephesus. Because you probably know Ephesus is one of the major cities in the ancient world. So the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesus, it, it's a major point from which there are going to be other churches established, other missionary efforts made. Well, Paul wasn't the first to arrive in Ephesus. Before Paul arrived there, another powerful preacher was there named Apollos. Now look in the previous chapter in verse 24. This is Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Now, I just want to stop for a moment. Don't go further. Just stop there for a moment. Of a preacher of the gospel, of a servant of the word, of a preacher of the Lord Jesus Christ, could anything better be said than what was just said of Apollos? I mean, it's, it's statement after statement in, in the Greek way of piling up statements so that we understand the cumulative force He's a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. By this time in the book of Acts, that puts him on the hero side. But I said stop, that means we got to go forward. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Okay, see, one of the problems there is that as competent as Apollos was, he didn't know about Christian baptism. He knew about the baptism conducted by John. And I want you to notice something. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance within a context of work salvation. That's not Christian baptism. So this is not a small issue. And I want us to notice something. In today's world, hyper-driven by social media and frankly with so many competing things going on, there would have been so many in the church in, in our day who simply would have said, we just caught Apollos in a false doctrine or a false teaching. Therefore, he is just to be condemned, written off, and we're to have nothing to do with him. Now, the church is always to be looking for and, and making discernments about true and false doctrine, and we are to remove false teachers. But here you have Apollos, and I just wanted to show you the Holy Spirit has used so many phrases to tell us how faithful a servant he is. He's competent in the scriptures. He's powerful. He's instructed in the way, but, 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 but this one thing, and it's not a small thing. It's, uh, just understand, it's not a small thing. Even in the Great Commission, where Jesus speaks of what the church is to do, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I mean, if we're missing that, we're missing a whole lot. You don't have a church. You don't have Grace Church of the Valley without baptism. It's no small thing. But what will happen? Just notice this. This is the pattern that we have to hope and pray for, brothers and sisters. 
When someone says something wrong, when someone preaching or teaching gets something wrong, what should be our first, our first impulse? Tweet about it? Blog about it? No, our first impulse should be that some senior Christians grounded in the Word should take him away privately and seek to instruct him more faithfully. And you say, well, Mulder, that sounds like an interesting plan. Where did you get it? You know, next verse. Look at verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Isn't that sweet? Now, the test is, does he receive the correction? He obviously did. Just follow. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. I mean, again, do you, do you notice? I don't know a preacher alive who wouldn't want that on the tombstone. This is just a picture of what we hope will happen in the church in doctrinal correction. You hear something wrong, don't fail to deal with it. If there is obstinate refusal to be corrected, separate the brother, period. But you pray for a Priscilla and Aquila to come along and say, Apollos, we need a cup of coffee. And then Apollos comes out of that correction by Priscilla and Aquila so powerful that he is described here as being uniquely powerful in refuting the Jews in public, showing what, what, what? By the scriptures, in, in other words, exposition, that the Christ was Jesus. And, and what you'll also see is that Paul shows his confidence in Apollos by sending him out again and again and again. Now, the apostle Paul had to have a special place in his understanding of pastoral ministry because this is the apostle Paul ready to be himself executed because of his conviction in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he had been Saul, the persecutor of the church. He knows heretics when he sees one. He knows obstinate opposition to the gospel when he sees it. He knows a chance for correction when he sees it. And he knows one mighty in the scriptures when he sees him. All right, Ephesus. Paul arrives at Ephesus, and you remember, you know, one of the major New Testament letters is Paul to the Ephesians, and Paul arrives at Ephesus, and uh, it's a mess. It's a mess. Now, it's a mess because it's Ephesus, and Ephesus is a mess. Ephesus was one of the epicenters of the occult in the entire ancient world. It was just everything, and I have been there. Some of you may have been there. Ephesus is an interesting place to visit because it was put together put back together by Raiders of the Lost Ark. And you say, well, where did that come from? All right. Well, in the early 19th, early 20th century, late 19th century period of, especially the early 20th century, when the field of archaeology was first beginning, you know, different countries sent different expeditions. And the English and the Americans kind of followed the classical archaeological method. You have a dig, you measure everything, you kind of leave it in its place, you measure where in the quadrant everything was found. The Germans treated it all like a Lego set. I think that goes there. So they actually put everything back together as much as they could. So you can go to Ephesus, you can see the facade of the library at Ephesus, and the, the German expedition leader is so proud of it, he 
wrote his name on the inside of it. So actually for like those of us who love the New Testament, it's actually one of those interesting places to go because everything is at least put back together somewhat. You can walk on the streets that Paul walked on. You can see the amphitheater where these things took place. You can even see the library of Ephesus with all of it put back together again like a Lego set. Ephesus was one of those cities in which you had all this occultic activity, all this going on, and a huge industry in magic. And that's a passage that follows. We're not going to be able to look further at that, but a huge industry in magic that the gospel, let's just say, disrupts. But while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, came to Ephesus. He found some disciples. Just very quickly, he, um, he wants to check their orthodoxy, and he wants to understand where they are in the faith. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And, and they don't even know about the Holy Spirit. We've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So let's just say again, that's non-Trinitarian theology. That's sub-Christian. And again, Paul doesn't say, well, I just found a band of heretics, you know, shake the dust off his feet and leave. He preaches the gospel. He teaches them more accurately. And that's the test, by the way. The true test of Christians is that they receive correction according to the word because they want to know the way more accurately. They want to believe those things that all Christians must certainly believe. And so, you know, Paul's quite willing to write some people off, but he doesn't write them off until they refuse the preaching of the word of God. That's a good, that's a good reminder to us. Look, there are an awful lot of churches where what we need is some very young, very bold very convictional young men to go in and into whited sepulchers and preach the gospel. And you know what? Some of those churches are going to fire those conservative young preachers. But you know what? Some of them are going to hear the preaching of the word of God and go, we never heard anything like that before. Mary and I are a part of one of those churches right now. We're a part of the most gospel-minded churches we've ever seen. And it took a young evangelical preacher going into a church and preaching the gospel at the risk of his life. And the Lord honored that preaching by reforming the church. Now it's filled, filled with 20-something absolutely committed young believers. Mary and I are the old people in the room. I know for some of you, you say, well, that was obvious. No, it was not obvious before. It's only obvious now. Okay, there's some hilarious things in here that are just embedded, and I, I should skip them, but I'm not going to skip this one. In verse 8, Paul enters a synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some stubborn and, and well, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Okay, so that's the next step. So in other words, where the, where the gospel is rejected, you just leave. You just leave. And where did Paul go? This is the weird part. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay. In the, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, and in particular in the ancient Roman world, Naming a son was a very, very big thing. A very, very big thing. And it was the practice of at least some that they would not name their sons until they figured out his personality. It was a provisional name until they gave him the name that seemed to fit him. This is the hall of Tyrannus. 
Evidently, by the time this kid was a toddler, they said, what's his name? Only name that fits, Tyrant. That's what Tyrannus means. <laughs> what an amazing thing. It's just, it's just here in the New Testament, you go, okay, okay. Evidently, this kid, Tyrant. But he's got a hall for rent. We'll rent from the tyrant. And it was a place of preaching. But then things get weirder. In verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Again, this is the apostolic age. So this is happening. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away by the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Here come the seven sons. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. This is one of the problems the church faces in every generation. The power of God unto salvation is in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no more powerful force on earth than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Empires have sought to extinguish the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dictators and potentates and any numbers of others have attempted to stop still belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Giant totalitarian dictatorships in the center of the 20th century existed and some persist even now with a declared opposition to any belief in God and to Christian belief in particular. And yet the gospel thrives. But false pretenders want to get in on it. In the ancient world, there was a, a, a very realistic, very deep concern. Remember, Ephesus is a center for magic. There was a very deep preoccupation with the dark side. And so I just need to put in just a couple of minutes here to say, one of the things that must be true of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is that there is no preoccupation with the dark side. I want you to hear me say, I'm looking at you in the eye here, there is a dark side. There is a dark side. There is the demonic. There are demons. There are evil forces. The Apostle Paul makes this very clear. Just consider the closing to the letter to who? The Ephesians. Not by accident. There are those who give themselves to the dark side. There can be Christians who become too interested in the dark side. We're not to do that, but we are to acknowledge it. The dark side has its own entrepreneurs. All you'd have to do is go to a place like, and I, I don't mean this as a slam at New Orleans, just as a city where there are believers there too. <clears throat> but you know, you just walk in the French Quarter and the occult is just everywhere and it, it, it's profit making. And, the, and of course, tourists don't take it seriously. Well, you know, voodoo was, and it's serious. All this, all this is serious. The seven sons of Sceva meant it seriously. They established an exorcism agency. They had a sign out front. Sceva, 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 Sceva. <laughs> Exorcist for hire. The seven sons of a high priest named Sceva. And by the way, the Roman historical records record a Jewish high priest named Sceva. These are his boys. And they've gone to Ephesus to claim the family franchise. 
We do exorcisms. Okay, and here's what's really important because we're looking at the attestation of the gospel. We're looking, at, we're looking at God's own demonstration of the truth of the gospel and God's determination to literally strip naked those who would seek to manipulate, to corrupt, and to profit by the false preaching of the gospel. But boy, there's something else here too. Right here in Acts chapter 19, we have the most spectacular New Testament test of theological identity. A confirmation of theological identity. This passage is strangely enough somewhat parallel to Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Another passage where Elijah, the prophet of God, knows he cannot merely give testimony to the one true and living God. He has to strip naked the claims of the Baals. All right, now we're in Ephesus. Just follow the text very quickly. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Now, notice the strange language here. The Holy Spirit wants us to say every one of these words. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Okay, so isn't this amazing? They really don't know exactly how to say everything they want to say about Jesus. But the summary, just understand how glorious this is in, the, in salvation history. How glorious is this? That at this point in Ephesus, what the demons say, well, we're going to let the demons speak in a minute. What the Jewish exorcists say is, we adjure you, we command you evil spirits to come out by the Lord Jesus whom Paul preaches. Okay, all I want to say is, every preacher should hope for an epitaph like that. I want you to notice that these itinerant, entrepreneurial, corrupt exorcists know that Paul was preaching Jesus. They went in on it. They want in on it big time. And just notice very quickly what happens. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? I think you and I both know, we all know, there's going to be a great sorting. There's going to be a great sorting on the day of judgment. And there are going to be a lot of churches that are going to be shown never to have been churches. And, and there are a lot of preachers who are going to be effectively stripped naked and shown to have been false preachers preaching a false gospel. There are going to be entire religious enterprises that are going to be revealed as being not the servant of the gospel, but the enemy of the gospel. A foretaste of what that judgment is going to look like is what you see right here. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? You're trying to cast us out where we have taken possession and claimed dominion and have taken control, you're going to cast us out by the Jesus whom Paul preaches? Yeah. We know Jesus. You remember in the Gospels, the first to proclaim the identity of Jesus in the most comprehensive and clear way is a demon. They know who Jesus is. 
They also know they're already destroyed by him. They already crushed under his heel. But right now, the devil roams to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? When I speak of this to preachers, let me tell you what I want to say to preachers. You know, our great goal should be that we preach the gospel in such a way that even the evil spirits would say of us, Jesus I know, Scott I recognize, but who are you? It should be every preacher's had great ambition to be in that middle category. Every single preacher, every single teacher of the Word of God needs to pray to be found in that middle category. Jesus, I know. Pastor, I recognize. But who are you? On the day of judgment, there are going to be a lot of preachers. There going to be a lot of religious leaders. There are going to be a lot of those who are going to be confronted on the day of judgment with Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? Now, a foretaste of what God's judgment is going to look like on false pretenders is what happens to these Jewish. And, and by the way, there's just so much here. What time do I end? I don't know. That means now. Uh, yeah, okay. Sorry. It's an inelegant way, but I figure better to do it inelegantly than not at all. Okay, so I just want you to notice a foretaste of the judgment that comes upon, upon false preaching is what happens to the seven sons of Sceva. Just, just remember this. The evil spirit answered them. Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize. Who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, the seven of them, Sceva, 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 Sceva. And overpowered them so that they fled out of that house, the next two words are crucial, naked and wounded. Okay. All right. In the first century Jewish world, and this continues throughout Jewish history, and it goes back into the Old Testament, one of the worst forms of human degradation is nakedness. Nakedness. Nakedness is absolute humiliation. And this evil spirit knows that. Leapt out of the man in whom he had residence and went after the seven sons of Sceva and they fled from the house naked? You know, again, what was the sermon about? What was interesting in the sermon? Uh, well, exorcist being stripped naked. Hadn't had that before. It's right here in God's word and wounded, by the way. But then notice what happens. He fled out of that house naked and wounded. And verse 17 is just one of the sweetest verses in all the book of Acts. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It's just hard to ignore naked wounded Jewish exorcists running through the streets. I mean, that requires some explanation, right? It doesn't happen every day. Well, if it requires an explanation, what's the explanation? Well, you know, they tried to use the name of Jesus. And those Jewish idiots tried to use the name of Jesus and Paul. 
And you know, the most amazing thing happened. The evil spirits leapt out of the man who was seeking the, the uh, exorcism and beat them all up, stripped them naked, sent them out wounded and bleeding into the streets. What's for dinner? I mean, you understand how fear would default. I mean, this, 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 this kind of thing, if this happened in Kingsburg, I think you'd all be knowing about it real fast. My point is this. From time to time, the gospel is vindicated publicly. I want us to notice something. God's servants are to be found rightly preaching and teaching the Word of God. It is up to God Himself to bring the vindication. In other words, it is right for us to pray for that vindication, but it's not up for us to vindicate ourselves. We can't. And one of the strangest ways in the book of Acts, one of the clearest testimonies to the authenticity of the apostles' preaching was an evil spirit beating up seven Jewish itinerant exorcists. Only in the book of Acts. But I want you to notice what in the book of Acts, everything comes down to everything. Nothing is for show. Nothing is for conversation. Nothing is for headline news. Everything is about the gospel. And so notice where this leads. Fear fell upon them all. In the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. There was revival in the church. There was increased sanctification and obedience in the church. The church... The believers witnessing this got even more serious about their Christianity, were convicted of their sins, and some of them convicted about their practices. A number of those who had practiced magical arts, they were, they were in their previous pre-conversion life. They brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. It's a fortune. And then look at verse 20. It's one of the great theme verses of the entire book of Acts and thus of the entire New Testament. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay, so in conclusion, just a couple of minutes. Isn't that what we want to see? Seriously, isn't, isn't that what we want to see? What you see here, that the word of the Lord continues to increase and to prevail mightily. Let's just look at each other. Isn't that what we long for? Isn't that what we pray for? And you say, well, how are we going to do that without evil spirits and naked exorcists? We do that as the apostles will instruct us themselves in the New Testament by preaching the word in season and out of season. And here's the amazing thing. The preaching of the word of God doesn't produce less results. It produces more. The big action in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ these days is not in the hall of Tyrannus. It's not out on the streets. The big the big gospel work of this age is not what happened on the streets of Ephesus. It's what happens behind the pulpit of the church. The shift from apostolic preaching attested by miracles and signs to the preaching of the word in the church leading to the conversion of the lost who are saved, to the edification of the saints unto holiness for the building up of the church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the readying of the saints for the kingdom of Christ to come. Brothers and sisters, that's not a less big deal than naked, bleeding exorcists. It's actually even an infinitely greater thing.
Let's rejoice in it.